as they unfold. Ordinary time, dog days of summer, extraordinary days. This morning we have a text that we look at that it could be perhaps the most practical text, if not the most practical text, in the entire New Testament. Scholars, commentators, pastors, and theologians call this text very simply the rule of Christ. It appears in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, and I'm going to read us through verse 22. My friends, Matthew. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Step two. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Step three. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by God in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I, says Christ, am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I love that. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. My friends, the reading of God's Word, a very practical text, the rule of Christ. This text is not about either you do this or this will happen. It's easy to read this text this way. This text is not about a transaction. Either you repent or you're gone, buddy. In other words, this text is not about getting rid of people. This text is not about, as some would call very in, uh, inflammatory language, it's not about excommunication. And why do I know this? Well, we need to understand the whole context text of Matthew chapter 18. There's five primary teachings in Matthew chapter 18. I've outlined those for you in the sermon notes that you were given this morning. But let me also articulate them here so that we can get a flow for what's really happening in the text. You see, what we can't do with any one text is take that text out and elevate it apart from the things that come before and come after and other things that are said and spoken about and written in Scripture. All of those come into play and weight the way in which we read any particular text. So in Matthew chapter 18, there's five core teachings. The first core teaching, the first five verses, and I'll summarize it briefly. Cultivate childlike humility. And forbid the children to come unto you not. Strong teaching in a world when children were considered property of the Father. Not unlike, if you're reading and going through The Color of Compromise, 
chattel. Children were considered less than human, as were women. They were the property of the patriarch and the family, the father. Notice Jesus upends and undoes that in this text. The second teaching that comes in Matthew 18, verses 6 through 9, is simply, hey, don't be a stumbling block to kids. You know, don't let your behavior or something that you say cause someone else to stumble and trip in their faith. The third teaching in Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, is really powerful as well. And it's summarized simply by suggesting and asking us all as disciples and followers of Christ to treat every little one like a loving shepherd would treat their sheep. And in our text this morning, we're asked to resolve disagreements in a lovingly and redemptive manner by offering forgiveness 77 times, the fifth primary text or teaching in Matthew 18. There are unique nuances in our teaching this morning about how to resolve conflict, how to repair hurt feelings. We are given best practices in resolving those hurt feelings and having difficult conversations. The first teaching is that this is only one of two times in all of the Gospels where the church, the word for church in Greek is ekklesia. The word church means called out from. It's used to show the church to respond differently than the world responds. To ask disciples of Jesus Christ to respond differently than the shame-fame game. That was kind of fun to say that ten times really fast. That we often see in social media or even in your favorite local network news. This is the rule of Christ for the church. The focus in this teaching is on humility, tenderness, reconciliation, reparation, forgiveness. It's not on punishment. The goal of this teaching is to regain. In other words, what we pray every week, to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now this is an important text because it, it has ramifications for all kinds of areas and aspects of our life. It, it could be between coworkers. <laughs> could be between theological ideas, political positions. Anytime a disagreement happens and someone is hurt or offended by an offender, this text gives us four best practices in how to repair and regain that relationship for men, women, and children who are baptized as one of our key sacraments into the life of the body of Christ called the church, the communion of saints. Now, I know that our context today is relatively different because we do live in this social media, shame-fame game culture where it's kind of cool to throw shade and 
you know, say whatever we want, to speak our truth at the expense of someone else. And I've seen it, and I know you have as well. You see, Jesus in Matthew is asking disciples of Jesus Christ, honestly, to refrain from doing that. To be different. To be called out and different. So we're not going to yell. We're not going to scream. We're not going to jump up and down. We're not going to take our money and storm off and run. We're not going to uh, slander someone else. We're not going to just silently, passive-aggressively walk away. But we're going to do the hard work the deep work of true discipleship that holds love and compassion and tenderness and care and reconciliation and reparation as a best practice for the church. Because honestly, if the church doesn't model this, I guarantee it, no one else, no other institution will do that. You see, what makes us Christian is not whether we disagree, we will. What makes us Christian is not whether we'll hurt other people's feelings, we unintentionally will. What makes us Christian is not that we won't wound other people, because we're all perfectly imperfect, we will. What makes us Christian is how we go about resolving Feelings of hurt. And it begins because we primarily, oftentimes, usually, almost all the time, don't have all the information. We have a limited slice and perspective of what we've just been given. In other words, we're not omniscient. We're just not God yet. <laughs> we don't know all of the nuances and in the intentionalities, we're perfectly imperfect. Reminds me of a great story that I read this week, and I've, I've thought about it almost every single day. I'm, I'm working really hard at living into it, and I'm finding how difficult at times it really is to live in to the truth of this old folklore story. I'd like to share it with you, all as a preface to four best practices that we can glean from this text in resolving hurt feelings. The title of this is Maybe. There was an old farmer who had worked his crops for many years. Just let it sink in. Picture him outside today, sitting under the shade, a long tube of grass coming out of his mouth. He's hot. He's tired, he's sweaty, but he's still there. One day his horse, his prized possession, ran away. Upon hearing the news, his neighbors came to visit. Such bad luck, they said to the man, sympathetically. The farmer replied, maybe. The next morning, his horse returned, bringing with it three other wild horses. Oh my, how wonderful, the neighbors exclaimed. And they visited the farmer with great joy and celebration. This is fantastic. And the farmer replied, 
maybe. The following day, his son tried to ride one of the untamed horses. He was thrown from the horse, and he broke his leg. Oh, boy. The neighbors came back again to console their good friend, the old farmer, to offer him their sympathy in the midst of his misfortune. Oh, farmer, my friend, such bad luck, they said to him. The farmer replied, join me now, maybe. The day after the accident, military officials came to the village to draft young men into the army. Seeing that the farmer's son had broken his leg, they passed him by. The neighbors came rushing over to his home, congratulating the farmer on how well things had, in fact, turned out. And they exclaimed and celebrated together, what good fortune! To which the farmer replied, maybe. You see, the power of stories like this is that they set the stage for tenderness, compassion, and humility. We never have all the information. No one does. We think we do, but rarely does one. This text, a strong text, the rule of Christ, four best practices in resolving hurt feelings through difficult conversations. These come right from the text, literally. If I've been hurt by someone, offended, it's my responsibility, my responsibility to go right to the person who offended me. Notice the charge is given to the offended. The charge is given of courage to the offended one. Hey, you've been hurt. Okay. You don't have all the information either. It's your responsibility to talk to the offend-or, seeking to regain the relationship. What I find fascinating about this particular moment is it's not my charge to go talk to a coworker, my supervisor, someone else. I go immediately, as I'm charged in the rule of Christ, to go and talk to the person who hurt my feelings. If the relationship was repaired, we celebrate together. The second best practice takes into consideration if, if that doesn't bring a necessary and prudent resolution that resolves the difficulty it's my responsibility to gather a friend or two to talk with the offender. Again, in love, with tenderness and compassion, seeking to restore 
everyone's right relationship with one another and with God. If that works, we celebrate and move on. If not, best practice number three. It's time to tell it to the leadership of the church who will go and talk with the offended and the offender. Now many at this point tend to stop the story and make it hard and cruel punishment. As I read this story in the context of all of Matthew 18, I don't think that's an appropriate read. I think there are times when that's the solution, but it's never the desired endgame result. Because Peter goes on in the text and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive somebody when I've been wronged? Seven? You know, if I was, if I was going to Jesus and talked about like my brother, I'd say, how many times? Like one? <laughs> Seven's already a little bit of grace. And Jesus says, no, that's not enough. We pursue forgiveness 77 times. Is that meant to be literal? No, I think it's a metaphor for please don't stop pursuing forgiveness, which is the fourth best practice that Matthew outlines in this text. Pursue forgiveness for as long as it takes. Pursue, 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 like Jesus pursued, pursued, pursued each and every and single one of us all the way through our own lives. It's called in a famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. So my friends, whether disagreements are about race relations, politics, theology, money, resources, vision, interpersonal relations, mission, anything at all, it's up to the offended to take the initiative through the virtue of courage to go and have that conversation and not to go around because not one human being has all the information and we're not omniscient at least as of 9.50 on September 6th. It's always with a view Sorry, 10.50. It's always with a view to reconciliation and reparation. A couple questions that I'd like to leave us with today, because it's just as practical of a text as we could possibly have ever had. How do we, as Christian men and women, use our individual and public platforms to promote reconciliation? How do we use that? How do we use who we are as called out ones <laughs> to show the world a different way to live, to promote reconciliation in the broadest sense? And a second question that I leave you with is what kind of community could we create even in the midst of the height of disagreement where we viewed others not as an enemy but as a person of loving and tender, restorative action. Now, I don't know about you, 
But when I look at interpersonal relationships through the lens of this text, my heart rate begins to go down. <laughs> because the Spirit of God empowers us to implement these four best practices for the transformation of all humankind. Let's pray. We worship you this day in spirit and truth. We confess that we think we have all the information and rarely, if ever, perhaps never, really do. May we approach people like Jesus did as we see him interact in the scriptures with children, women, outsiders, the blind, the lame, the poor, the marginalized. This is not a, a veneer, what would Jesus do kind of question. This is a deep faith that transforms not just me and you, but us and all. <laughs> because after all, 77 times, is an awful lot of times. In your name we pray. Amen. What a great way.